So in the beginning of the year, we started a new series called Focus. And the aim of this series is to get us to reorient ourselves around what's really important in the new year. Uh, because as often we get distracted by things that are not important, but become important. There are things that are good, things that are right, things that are, are worthy of our time that can end up usurping better things, greater things. So these good things like family, these good things like church, these good things like work can often take the place of what's really important, even in the midst of things like family and church and work. So our aim over this next few weeks and in this series on focus is to look at what is really important so that everything else can be reordered properly under these things. So we saw in the beginning of the year that the, the idea of community is something the Bible describes pretty clearly. There's a picture of community in our minds and in the culture's mind, and then there's the picture of community in the Bible. And often these two things are at odds with one another. And so as we come together and form a community of foundation, we need to make sure that we are rightly conforming to the image of the community in the Bible and not in our own minds or culture, insofar as they may be conflicting with one another. Well, to live out community is more difficult than it is simply to talk about. And so last week we talked about how we can confront one another in that community. It's one thing to say the community exists for the glory of God. And the community exists as a family. But families confront one another. And they do it in love, usually. But the commitment and their family unity means that even in their confrontation, the good of the other person is at stake. The well-being and the spiritual development of the other person that we confront is our motivation for the love of God in that person. So we talked about how we can confront one another biblically. How the gospel brings us together so that we can have this sort of healthy confrontation in our lives that many of us often lack in the church. Well, once you've been confronted, there's two choices that you have. One, you can reject that and dismiss it and defend whatever you might be confronted about. So if someone says that you're a little mean, you can simply say, you're wrong, you're dumb, please get out of my face, don't talk to me again, thereby confirming what they say. Or you can evaluate, assess, and probably agree that there is some validity, even if not completely, some validity to what they may be saying. That every confrontation is an opportunity for you to examine your own heart before God and before the Word of God and to see how you might grow and be more faithful as a Christian and as a brother, a brother or sister to that individual because of that confrontation. Well, the next step in this idea of what confrontation looks like then is confession. It means acknowledging that we are indeed in need of grace. And confrontation is nothing if not a preemptive giving of grace to another brother or sister to say, help me help you, serve you, lead you in greater holiness and in worship and in uprightness before God. It's, a, it's, a, it's an act of grace and love towards one another that provides the opportunity for whoever it may be that's being confronted to acknowledge that they do need grace. And that grace comes not only from the person extending the hand of confrontation and love, but also that there's grace to be found in Christ who solves all of our deepest needs and longings and can heal all of our wounds. But just like community, confession is something that we can talk about well, but not practice well. We have these vague notions of what confession looks like. Maybe you think of when you hear the word confession, something like a courtroom scene. 
and you either confess to the crime or not. Or maybe you've got maybe a Roman Catholic idea of confession where you've got to go and uh, sort of let someone hear that you've done wrong so that they can somehow absolve you of your sin or your wrongdoing. Well, both of these ideas are not actually biblical in terms of confession inside the church. Well, in one sense, we see that it's right to own up to our wrongdoing. It is right to share and acknowledge our wrongdoing before others. The Bible's picture of confession, particularly in the life of a community, is much more pointed and is much more difficult to do than the other variations of what confession looks like. There are two confessions, two senses of confession in Scripture. The first is a confession of faith. As in Hebrews 10, verse 23, the author says, Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. This idea that the faith that we confess is sort of a body of doctrine. It's a, it's a set of, of biblical truths that we affirm. It's, it's who God is in Christ. It's the gospel and the clarity and the sufficiency of his word. We confess it. We acknowledge it. We, we, we publicly announce that this is true. And the author of Hebrews says to hold fast to your confession. So we think of things like the Helvetic Confession of Faith or the Westminster Confession or the Second London Confession, which is a set of body of truths, of doctrines that we confess to be true. That's one sense in which the Bible describes confession. But there's a second sense that is namely our confession of sin. This may be what most of us think of when we hear the word confess. For instance, Psalm 32, verse 5, David says, I acknowledge my sin to you. And did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. So we see the second sense of confession, not just in a proclamation of what's true, of an affirmation of of biblical and godly doctrines, but an acknowledgement of sin before God or before others. But in actually both of these senses of confession, there's a common element. Both of them, there's an element of making what is in the heart Known, What is inside the person, whether the mind or the heart or the soul, however you describe it, making it known to the person to whom we may confess, whether that's God or another brother or sister. We are acknowledging a truth and we are admitting publicly acknowledging that truth before others. Whether it's the truth of God's word, whether it's the truth of our allegiance to Christ, or whether it's the acknowledgement of the brokenness and the sinfulness of of our failures and our neglect toward one another in love. It's making known what is in our hearts for the sake of our own understanding of who God is, the fellowship with God, and also the community in which we're a part. So this work uh, of making known our hearts, of making known what lies in our mind and in our souls, is what the Apostle John here in 1 John calls walking in the light. Look in verse 5, chapter 1, 1 John, chapter 1, verse 5. It says, This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sins. And if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. 
But if we confess, verse 9, our sins, He, Christ, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. Notice this work of confession, of making known truths about God being light and truths about us as being sinful brings together this idea of walking in the light before God and with one another. John calls it walking in the light. He brings together the truth of God's character, this idea of the confession of his righteousness, and the truth of our own character, the confession of our sin. And they're married together in the life of a community in which confession is a regular part. This is why John, in his letter, hits this in the very beginning. That if you want to walk in the light together, walk in obedience to God's righteousness and his character and the thing that he's made known to his people, you've got to live a certain way. And it means having no false pretenses about how good you are, perfect you are, or how in need of grace you may or may not be. But regularly recognizing before God and others that you have sinned that you habitually practice such sin and therefore need to confess and make right and restore your relationship to God and others. He marries these two things together, the, the, the acknowledgement of God's character and the acknowledgement of our own character. And what we're taught here is that both our confession of faith and our confession of sin are linked together and that the one will necessarily lead to the other. That's the logic that, that John gives. That once you confess the truth of who God is and his character of being light, that is righteousness, perfect, morally upright, and untouchable, that there is no darkness at all in him, you must logically then proceed to, well, I am not like that. And confession must be the result. If we do not confess and acknowledge our sin after an examination of the character of God and righteousness, we must admit that we are so hard-hearted that not even the righteousness of God would move us. But John says if you're in Christ, you're moved to confess. When you spend time dwelling and considering the nature of God and His righteousness, and you compare yourself to Him, confession is going to be the result. The acknowledgement that you are nothing like Him is going to be the result. The acknowledgement that he's light and you're dark is going to be the result. That's the sort of community that, that Paul and John and Peter and Jesus ultimately envisioned for the body of Christ. These two ideas are linked and lead to the other. In other words, the deeper the conviction of the truth of God runs, the more clearly we will see our own sin and then run to Christ for help. The deeper the conviction of the truth of God runs in our hearts, the more clearly we will see our own sin and then run to Christ for help. But there's something else, of course, that I think we should draw out this morning, and it's the effect that the work of confession has on the body of Christ. Notice here in verse 7 that there is a fellowship, a sense of real community and solidarity with one another through the acknowledgement of our sins before each other. Look what he says in verse 7. If we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. That's a conditional statement. If we want to have fellowship with one another, we need to walk in the light together. If we walk in the light, like he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Remember last week when we talked about Christ 
calls and, and secures a, a body to himself, a community, and he establishes that community by his blood. And it is the absolving of sin by the blood of Jesus that unites and makes the body one. That we have unity with one another because in Christ's death and his flesh, he, he breaks down the dividing wall of hostility that exists between us. He creates one new man, Paul says, out of the two. Well, this is what John is also getting at. That Jesus died and his blood cleanses the sins of all those who call us together and all those who would walk in obedience and faithfulness to the righteousness that Christ provides. That is, in the light, as he is in the light, that binds the church together. So it's not just our justification, friends, that makes us a healthy and unified church. It is our progressive work together in our sanctification that makes a church unified. If we are all justified by God's grace, we can be thankful for that. But together, if we are growing in our sanctification, that is, in God growing us into the image of Christ the Son, we are more intimately and more con- uh, congruently growing together as a community as Jesus describes. So verse 7 says that there's a fellowship and a community that happens through the acknowledgement of our sins before each other. Verse 8 continues, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth isn't in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So there's a cause and effect happening here. That in Christ, he justifies and brings the people to himself. God and his providence has brought you here this morning. He's justified you by his grace. And now he's called us to live and work in a way with one another where there is confession open acknowledgement of our sin and failure and shortcomings and neglect to God and to others so that we can have fellowship. Which means if we don't confess, if we don't openly acknowledge that we need God's grace, that we are sinful, that oftentimes we tend towards the darkness and not the light, our fellowship, that is the nature of our community, will suffer. There's a direct correlation to how closely we walk together in faith and in unity and how closely and how intimately we share in each other's lives, and particularly our sin. That's the logic of the Apostle John. Friends, can you imagine such a community in which we come together and we know each other so well that we can see the beginning of a temptation or sin, that we spent such time with one another across from the dinner table or sharing in prayer or in community in such a way that we, we are intimately with, familiar with the details of each other's lives. That we know the weaknesses of the other person. And that we have desired to come alongside of and lift the burdens of those who are troubled. And those who are weary. And those who need our help. That the strong among us would come and help and support the weak. That the weak would be able to openly confess that they need others more mature than them to lead and guide them and prepare the way. Can you imagine the sort of community that John describes here? where there's an open confession of sin and acknowledgement that we are all in the same boat together. It may be easy to imagine it, but the reality often is far from what John describes. And yet this is exactly what Jesus has called the church to be. It's one of the reasons that we take a moment every Sunday to acknowledge our own sinfulness. And maybe you've just got in the routine of a prayer of confession and assurance of pardon. It's certainly easy to do that when we do it week in and week out. 
But that moment is sacred in many ways. And it's an attempt for us to acknowledge what John here is describing. That we have come in need of forgiveness. That we have come in need of grace. And, and, and we, we ask an individual, whether it's John or Lucas or me or Michael, to just lead us in a prayer that acknowledges for all of us, God, we're sinful. But Christ has provided a way for us to receive forgiveness. Just that small moment, it takes a minute or two in our service, should, should give us a springboard for our week to enter into the same sort of work of confession, not just personally, but with one another, as we confess our sins to each other. That's the sort of community John describes. In fact, we already know that through our fellowship together in the local church, we have a responsibility to guard one another from sin. And practically, there's no real way to do that without the regular activity of confession. If we really want to guard one another from sin, the only real practical way to do it is to confess our sin to one another. I don't know about you, I'm not a mind reader. I cannot see into the crevices of your heart to know exactly what you're struggling with and when you're struggling. Friends, sometimes confession is the only way for sin to be brought out into the light. We are such good hoarders of sin and hiders of our own iniquities and shame that we could go on for years without anybody ever knowing that we have a particular sin or temptation or addiction that is rooted so deeply into our hearts. But confession sheds light on such sin. And it provides the opportunity for the community and for God's grace to work through and remove that sin from your life. So if we are called as a church, as a body and a family of Christ, to have a responsibility for one another by guarding one another from the sin in our lives, we must confess openly together. There's no real way to own our responsibility in each other's lives without regularly activity of, of confession. We see this not only in Jesus' command to go and reconcile with those we have wronged, as he says in Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. We see it not only implied in our loving confrontation of those who are in sin, as we discussed last week, but we also see it in John chapter 20, verse 23. As Jesus speaks to his disciple after his resurrection, he says, you don't have to turn there, it says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven of them. But if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. This is a curious thing that Jesus says to the disciples. And in fact, it's one of the verses that the Roman Catholics use to say, aha, see, these disciples, these specific men in the church, Christ has given the authority to absolve from sin. They're, they're wrong. What we actually see happening is what Jesus had said to the church in Matthew 18 and in Matthew 28, to own the responsibility to care for one another in a particular way to bind and loose what has been bound and loose in heaven in each other's lives by affirming what God has done or not done in their lives. Now, we do this fallibly as as Christians and as sinners, but we must do this nonetheless because Christ has given the church the authority and the responsibility for each other to affirm whether God has truly forgiven sin. And John will say in the rest of his epistle here that if you don't confess sin, if you continue to walk in darkness, if you continue to, to hide from the light, there's a good chance that there may, not be, there may not be any light in you. As he says in verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So he says to his disciples, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. And if you withhold the forgiveness from any, it is withheld. What does this mean? 
That there are those with the ability to absolve others of sin? No. What we see here, actually, is that the church has the authority and the responsibility to then affirm the forgiveness of sin through the act of confession. All we're doing is affirming what the gospel teaches us, that those who cry upon the Lord will be saved. And if you can, in all genuineness and all sincerity and to the best of our ability, we can see the fruits of, of repentance in your life, confess sin and seek absolution in the cross, what can the church say but your sins are forgiven? Not because we have the power and the authority to forgive sins, but we have the responsibility and authority over one another's lives to affirm the forgiveness of sin in the gospel. So Jesus tells us that this is what the body does. This is the kind of community he's called us to do. And if that sort of picture of the community of forgiveness and confession and reconciliation doesn't look like the reality of church in your life, it's because we are missing this aspect that Christ has called us into a responsible and accountable relationship with one another. Therefore, we must confess sin. It's significant. But why also should we practice such biblical confession? Why is it important and necessary that confession is a part of our lives? Well, it's important, friends, because confession places the gospel squarely in the center of our lives, in the center of our relationship with others, and in the center of our relationship and our walk with God. So without confession, we will go on to believe and practice many false things. But with confession, we see clearly the gospel regularly absolves us from sin, that we have been forgiven in Christ, that we are in Christ a new creation, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. The gospel reminds us of that. And confession regularly brings the gospel to the forefront and to the center of our lives as Christians. That's why we need confession. Without confession, we go on to believe and practice many false things. Let me give you six things that happen because of the failure to confess. First, the failure to confess implies that there is no need for pardon, which is an unbiblical idea at best and dangerous at worst. The failure to confess implies there is no need for pardon. Without confession, you're simply saying, I have no need. There's nothing in my heart which I truly need to confess before God or others. I've been saved. I'm safe from wrath and hell. God's led me on the path of righteousness. Confession's not necessary. And whether you actually believe that or not, your failure to confess your sins to one another implies that your heart tends towards believing it. So the practice, or the failure of the practice of confession begins to imply that there's no need for a pardon. And that puts us in a very dangerous place. Because if you don't believe there's ever a need for pardon from sin, that there's no iniquity that needs covering, that there's no ongoing unrighteousness from your life that needs to be weeded out, killed, and destroyed, then you're actually placing yourself outside of the need of the gospel. Outside of the need of the active obedience of Christ and His righteousness applied to you. And that you can go on the way that you're going on without any extra grace from Christ daily. That the promises that Christ says that, that God will supply for you every day the need that you have, you're throwing out the window. You can see how this is a dangerous game to play, the failure to confess. That's first. But secondly, the failure to confess also deceives the heart into thinking that it is safe when it is not. If we continue to fail to confess 
our sins before God, privately or publicly, before one another. We will deceive our heart into thinking that it is safe when it is not. This is what John means when he says, if you say that you do not have sin, you deceive yourself. You're you're lying to yourself and you're believing something that's not true. Those who think they are healthy will never go to the doctor. Those who believe they are righteous will never seek forgiveness of a sin they don't believe they have. So the failure to confess is a deception of the heart to think that it's safe when it's not. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches us. And even though we've been saved by grace and by God's grace, we continue to grow in our holiness and, and righteousness and personalhood and in our lives together, we still are sinful. You don't have to live more than three minutes to know that there's some false attitude or harder belief in your life. But when we continue to fail to confess, we harden our heart against a belief that it needs God's grace. And rather, we deceive ourselves in thinking it's safe when it's not. Third, the failure to confess distresses the fatherly forgiveness of God, even while we experience his judicial forgiveness. Let me explain it. In conversion and in salvation or justification, we receive God's judicial statement of forgiveness. That's what we call justification. It's being declared righteous. It means that God no longer sees us as sinful, but sees us clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And he declares us to be righteous. And yet, we know that a relationship with God the Father is still important, right? That he's not just God judge acquitting us of our sin, but actually now acquitting of our sin so that we can have a relationship with him. But if that relationship, that fatherly relationship isn't right then even if we experience justification, we are out of sync relationally. So confession actually puts right both the fatherly forgiveness, this relationship with God, in alignment with what we've received in our justification, this judicial forgiveness. It's as if we were uh, sinning against a family member. Anytime my daughter sins against me, there's nothing she can do that I would cut her out from my family, that I would cause that would cause me to forsake her or not love her as, as a father, as part of my family. But there are things that she can do and continue to do that can hurt and damage my relationship with her. And so when she sins or disobeys, she's, she's obligated to make that right with me. Now, she grows. She's five, so I'm not, you know, let's temper this expectation a little bit. But in any relationship, although there may be real forgiveness and love unconditionally between one person and another, the relationship between those two people can be strained until it's made right. This is simply what we do when we confess our sins as Christians. Although we've been reconciled by God and justification at one time, and that justification is good and cannot be changed or altered, God himself keeps us in that state for all eternity. We can, at times, put ourselves outside of the relationship of God. It's strained. So when you feel that you're not close from God in some sense, it may be because you have failed to confess sin. It may be that you have not acknowledged your need of God's grace in your life and your need of forgiveness for the attitudes and the actions and the, and the ways that you've thought and brought into your home or your family, your church, or your life. Failure to confess ultimately will cut us off from the joy of walking with God. All you have to do is compare the two Psalms of David in Psalm 51 and in Psalm 32. Remember, in David's life, we read about this. He, he sinned against God greatly, by desiring an adulterous relationship with, with somebody. And he even had that person's husband killed so that he wouldn't be caught. And God punished him and judged him because of that by taking away the child from David. 
And David mourned greatly. And we see in Psalm 51 that until he confessed his sin, his relationship with God was strained. He even says that he felt like his bones were wasting away. But there was a, there was a physical discomfort because he had not sinned or he had not confessed his sin before God. And then he does. You can read he speaks to his prophet Nathan that he has sinned against God. And Nathan says, yes, your sins have been forgiven. And it's when we read Psalm 32 where David says, I've confessed and I've received joy. In fact, keep your thumb here in First John. Let's go to Psalm 32 and read a little bit of this. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is a man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through all my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as, a, as by the heat of summer. But then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. For surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. For you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. And I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed or with bit or bridle, or it will stay near to you. For many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love surrounds those who trust in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord, and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. What is David connecting here? His confession and the receiving of forgiveness to the joy he now has in Christ or in God. So the failure, as we see that the confess, distorts the relationship we have with God the Father. It means that when we confess, we can rejoice in the relationship we have with God as David did in Psalm 32. So that's three. Fourth, the failure to confess hardens our heart over time. The more we go on not confessing sin before God or others, privately or publicly, we harden our heart, not just to assume we have no sin or need, but actually in justification for our sin. When we don't vocalize and acknowledge that the Bible calls what our actions are, our thoughts are, our deeds are sin, we harden our heart over time and we sear it. And therefore, when the Spirit seeks to move in our lives, we are so prone to ignoring Him and failing to confess our sins to one another that's easy to reject and ignore and go on sinning. So for instance, if you are continuing in sin, the same temptation over and over and over again, and you can't seem to get yourself out of this particular sin or cycle or habit, it may be because you have become so beset with sin and allowed its roots to go so deeply into your life that your heart is now hardened to the work of the Spirit in that particular issue. And it takes a move of God to break you free from those strongholds. We fail to confess. We will harden our heart over time. Consider, friends, at the first sight of sin in your life, you ran, you fleed to a brother or sister, and you said, this is, this is on my doorstep. Help me. Do you think sin would have had its grip on you for so long? 
The failure to confess hardens our heart over time. Fifth, the failure to confess, confess sin then also prevents the forsaking of it. If you don't confess your sin, you will not have victory over it. If you don't confess your need for grace, you will not receive the grace to fight sin. It is as simple as that. When we fail to confess our sin, there is no way we will be able to forsake it. For how can we forsake sin that we can't confess is really there? That we don't acknowledge we need grace to help with. We may continue and succeed for a time in our own will and power of delivering ourselves from a habit or a sin or a temptation. But eventually sin will find its way into our heart. And if we do not confess it, we cannot forsake it. And lastly, the failure to confess will harm the faith of others. Remember, John's talking about confession in the community. And when we fail to confess our sins to one another, we do a disservice to each other. What if I confess that I had a hard time with my anger with my children? And you thought I was the perfect pastor saint of the church. And you also had the hard time with anger towards your children. Are you more encouraged or less encouraged that you can fight sin together and the anger against your children? You see, simply by confession, we can help one another grow in our sin, from our sin. We can help one another see that there is encouragement and there's hope to be found, not just in the gospel, but together around the gospel, linking hands. But when we don't confess, we, everyone feels isolated. Their sins are their own. They have no help, no solidarity, no community. Matthew Henry says this, that those are best able to teach others the grace of God who has themselves had the experience of it. Those are best able to teach others the grace of God who have themselves had the experience of it. Friends, if you have struggled with sin and by God's grace overcome that sin, or you are in the midst of a struggle with sin, and you openly confess or share that sin with a brother or sister or a group or the church, you are encouraging others to come alongside of you in the victory of the battle of that sin. The failure to this harms the church and the faith of others. It disservices them, and it shortchanges them. So we must confess. Well, how then must we as a church then work to incorporate such confession into our lives? I'll give you three practical ways that confession can take place at foundation. First, we need to recognize that confession must come from a place of sincere humility and contrition. That means a place of genuine brokenness over your sin. It must come from a place of humility in which you recognize that your sin is an offense against God and that God rightly is angered and his wrath is kindled against sin and outside of Christ kindled against us. Any real confession, acknowledgement of our sin, must come from a place of sincere humility and contrition. Because unless we are genuinely broken over the offense of our sin, we will never truly move beyond its stronghold in our life. Question we can ask Is your God too small or too indifferent that sin is an offense to Him? Or is your God so neutered that he will never demand of you repentance and change? If you've been living with sin and have never felt the call of God to change or to repent, or to lean on Christ for the forgiveness of those sins, you may very well not have the word of God in us, as John says. Your God may be too small, too indifferent, too passive, or too weak. 
But the God of the Bible says that those whom he calls, he will justify. And those whom he justify, he will glorify. And on the road to glorification, friends, is our growth in Christlikeness, is our sanctification. Unless we are killing sin, as John Owen says, it will be killing us. So it must come from a place of sincere humility and contrition. In other words, a proper understanding of the righteousness and the kindness of God, who he is as just and righteous and perfect, combined with a reverent fear of the Lord in that righteousness, is the right balance for the remedy of confession. If you're going to confess your sin, it must come from a place of fear of the Lord for the judge and the righteous one who sees all iniquity and will punish all iniquity. And it must cause you to run to Christ then in confession and in contrition over your sin, genuine humility to seek forgiveness and atonement for that sin. Unless you understand the righteousness of God and the heinousness of sin, you will not truly be able to confess your sin in a way that leads to repentance and forgiveness. So friends, examine your understanding of the Lord. Grow and expand your understanding of God so that every sin, no matter how small it may be, is an offense to God. And the thought of an offense to God, the sense of sinning against God will draw you to confess your sin and to seek forgiveness and repentance in Christ. That must be the regular habit of those who seek true confession. Secondly, confession must be a habit that is carved out in the context of personal discipline and communal living. Confession needs to be a habit. If we only confess when things have reached a boiling point, we will do ourselves little good for the next time we actually need to confess. We only confess our sins when we are so deep in the mire that we need, we need God's movement in so many strong and powerful ways for him to bring us out. As God often does, we're going to continue to find ourselves back in the same place. But if confession is a habit or a regular part of our lives, in our personal disciplines, in our prayer, and our reading, if we're confessing sin as we read through the Bible and we see and acknowledge ways that we don't live up to the standard of God's word, and in our communal living through our time of confession each Sunday morning or in our community group or in our one-on-one times where we're discipling one another, if we are not confessing that, then we'll find ourselves battling with the same things. Carve out specific times of confession in your life. Sunday morning, Monday morning, Wednesday night, whenever it may be. Ask yourself, God, examine me and show me where I do not meet your standards. Cause me to see my sin as an offense to you. And carve out habits in your life that provide opportunities for you to engage in confession this way. And lastly, be specific in your confession. It is helpful to acknowledge you're a sinner, but there are many unbelievers who will acknowledge that they're sinners. Confession must be specific, not only in what it is, but also in its effects. That my anger towards my children, for instance, not only harms my children and fails to show them the gospel, but it actually doesn't provide a picture of the fatherhood of God. And that's sinful. And that's not, unlo- that's not loving to my children. And therefore, I have caused a wedge not only between me and my family, but between God and myself. Do you see how the specificity of that confession also allows me to seek a solution? God, help me understand what it means to be patient as you are patient. Help me understand to be slow to anger like you are slow to anger. When I'm specific, I can go to God in my confession, and he can hear me and guide me by his word. When we share and confess to one another, we are specific in our instances so that we can more faithfully and more accurately help one another. 
There are no unspoken prayer requests when we meet. I don't believe in them. Share. You may not share everything with everybody. Please actually don't. But as you meet and you discuss and you pray with others, share what is on your heart and mind and what you struggle with as a sin. It's one thing to say I struggle with, with anger. But in what way? I, I'm really impatient with my children. It's one way to say I struggle with addiction. Well, in what way? Well, I, I keep going on Facebook or I keep going on to this website. It's one thing to struggle, say you struggle with, with doubt. But be specific. I struggle to doubt God's goodness the way this is happening at work. When you confess those sort of things, how much more equipped and able are the people you confess it to to help you? So be specific. It must come from a place of sincere humility and contrition that's born out of an understanding of God's righteousness and your unrighteousness. It needs to be a habit carved out into the life of, of our discipline and our living together, and it needs to be specific. But acknowledging sin still will do us little good if we don't have the means by which our, our contritions are heard and ultimately are forgiven. God's justice demands that he condemn and judge all sin. But friends, this reality will set us up for the magnitude of God's grace to us in Christ. Again, we're not simply acknowledging or confessing sin before a judge, but we're acknowledging and confessing sin before a father who has sent his son for the absolution of our sins. So when we pray for the forgiveness of sins, we pray in the name of Christ. We plead the blood and the merits of Christ in the forgiveness of our sin. Remember, he came and never sinned. He came and laid down his life so that in the forgiveness of sin, we may receive his righteousness and his obedience. And that Christ gives his life for us so that we may not be condemned, but receive eternal life. Jesus sees and he knows all of our sins, the hidden ones and the ones we decide to share. And despite knowing every single one of our sins, he chose and willingly laid down his life in death so that God would forgive us in him. What does this mean? What does the gospel mean? What does confession mean in the light of the gospel and in Christ himself? It means that we are freed, liberated then, to go and be used by God even as broken and sinful people. It means that we don't have to be broken and chained by the sin that we confess, but rather when we confess and we receive an assurance of pardon that God and Christ has forgiven us of our sins, we can go, sin no more, but we can glorify God in the world as we seek to be on mission together. But not only this, you're also free to be real and transparent with one another. If you know you're a sinner, but you know your sins have been paid for by Christ on the cross, and you know that the assurance of your salvation is secured forever by Christ, there is never a need or a fear to share your sin or confess your sin before others. You can be real and transparent with them. What kind of community will this freedom create? The freedom to go into the world, even as broken, sinful people, and be on mission together. The freedom to be real and transparent with one another that allows us to grow in God-likeness and Christ-likeness together. The kind of community that results from this is the kind of community that God will be most glorified by. The kind of community that Fredericksburg needs to see. The kind of community that your family needs to hear. The kind of community that you need to be a part of in order to have victory over sin that has beset you year after year. The kind of community that our children need to grow up in so they can hear the gospel and they can be saved. The kind of community in which unbelievers can come in and they can see not only the gospel and hear the gospel through a sermon or through a Bible study, but in your confession, your love, and your humility to one another. That's the kind of community the Bible describes and is only possible through regular habitual confession. 
So we can say in our confession that I am weak, but God is strong. We can say I am a sinner, but Christ is righteous. We can say I am broken, but Christ is whole. You can say I am a liar, but God is true. Confessing sin and confessing our faith builds the kind of community that we desire to be and the kind of community that Fredericksburg needs this church to be. So friends, as Psalm 32 says, do not harden your heart while there is still time. Go and seek the forgiveness that God offers. For blessed are those whose sins are forgiven and those whose sins are covered. Let's pray. Father, we confess to you that we have not done this well. Time and time again, we have chosen to hide and conceal our sin instead of bringing it to the light. And we have walked in darkness then. And we have cut ourselves off from the community that you have desired to build. We have neglected our love of neighbor and of you because of the sin that we have held on to. God, may you begin a movement of confession just in this church. And though we can spend eternity confessing sins, we are more thankful, God, that even when we cannot even think of a sin to confess any longer, Christ still covers us. And that we are freed from the bondage and the fear of such sin. That when we confess our need of grace and accept the gospel, the grace that's offered in Christ through his death and resurrection, we can do what glorifies you. And we can be the kind of community that gives you glory. Lord, we love you and we pray that you would work all this deeply into our hearts and in our church. In Jesus' name.